Welcome to this podcast series asking the question, can art save us? I'm starting the first national and international conversation about courage and curiosity. What do these qualities really mean and why does it make a big difference to our mental, societal and democratic health? I talk to award-winning and diverse artists across the arts to explore these qualities in their lives and work, both to inspire and for us all to learn. I'm exploring why we need these qualities to help change the global epidemic of mental illness, loneliness, polarisation of our communities and even global conflict. If the arts cultivate courage and curiosity, I'm asking the question, can art save us? And my guest today is Manchester-based poet Kudsia Akhtar, already recognised as an important new voice for her generation. Her debut collection of poems, Hamoshi, is out now, published by Verve Poetry Press. She is also highly commended in the Forward Book of Poetry 2023, considered the indispensable annual guide to contemporary poetry. As the well-known journalist and broadcaster Andrew Marr writes, the Forward Prizes for Poetry have established themselves as central to the literary landscape of modern Britain. Kudsia is part of that landscape. Highly commended, she reflects modern Britain as a British Pakistani writer. She talks about the noise of cultural duality, as well as the silence that builds inside generations of migrant women. She has a soft and gentle voice that doesn't shy away from histories of massacres, genocides, patriarchy, colonial legacies and Islamophobia. Her voice is one of courage, integrity and insight, but in her own words, she puts it quite simply. Kudsia is my name and poetry is my game. Hello, Kudsia, and welcome. Hi. (laughs) That's a lovely introduction. (laughs) Well, I just love how you simplify what you do when it's just such um, immensely impressive work. But thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. Oh, you're more than welcome. So, so Kudsia, just picking up on that um, distinction, if you like, where you're highlighting um, a duality of existence, you refer to writing the eye of the British Pakistani experience. And is that the struggle you're reflecting in terms of how you emerge as I and not other? Yes, um, I think that there is a conflict between growing up, I think, um, having to switch face constantly between two cultures, so British and Pakistani. Um, And there is a difficulty because I think my poetry explores the idea of searching for an individual sense of self but also inheriting a collective uh, self that, or a collective consciousness um, that is sometimes projected onto you without your um, ability to change that. Um, And so I think breaking the silence was important for me, um, writing Hamoshi, because I had to address and represent the experiences, I guess, from an individual perspective, but also the individual in relation to 
the collective experience. And you've also described collective identity or collective experience as chaotic. I wondered if you could um, expand on that idea of the, the chaos of that collective identity. I think the chaos is rooted in the collective being something that sometimes you can't control. And I think that it becomes, well, it's associated with the other. Um, and growing up, you inherit of all, all the wonderful things about your culture um, and that you appreciate. Um, but then, of course, you also inherit this othered view of it, which is projected onto you via the media or your experiences with being the other in, for example, I think in Homoshi, I talk about my experiences of racism for the first time as a teenager. Um, so it is chaotic because internally you are working with different narratives of yourself. So sometimes um, you are criticizing yourself as well <laughs> in a very racist way because that's a tendency, because you pick up on all them. Um, the social uh, and cultural conditioning of your identity. Yeah, so you're almost almost adopting some of the negative labelling in terms of your own self-critique. Yes, yeah. And I think I wanted to write from that perspective, writing from acknowledging all those complexities and not sticking with the binaries of self and other. And I wondered if I wrote a text that breaks the silence um, from different perspectives, you know, and it's not as simple as us and them to, to fit those binaries and say, all the problems are with my experiences of racism, but it's not, I think there are, there are, um, different tensions uh, within the self of belonging to either culture, I think. Yeah, and it also seems particularly pronounced, um, this idea of writing the I, if you like, when you're looking at the experience of women in the Asian community. So there's an added layer to the, the complexity of racism and negative labelling, but also there's an oppressive issue in terms of patriarchy and how women may or may not assert their voices. And it's probably worth highlighting now for the listener's point of view that, of course, Homoshi, the title of your book, means silence. And, and you've said the silence around women makes me feel very uncomfortable. Is that something um, you could talk a little bit more about? Yeah, so um, I'll actually read a poem. <laughs> I think it's the best way to depict these issues. Um, the core of my practice as a writer um, is to be self-questioning. And um, the poem that I'm going to read is entitled Woman, Woman, Woman. And it's about the discovery of 
the body of a dead woman found in a sugarcane field in Pakistan. And I guess I was furious when learning that the reaction of those who had witnessed the body was of a rehearsed pity and how in some way she had become stripped of her humanity. And comments were made such as, um, this is a poor woman who made some bad decisions, or this happens every day, it's just another woman. Um, And essentially, the female is dehumanized and constructed to fit the narrative of the patriarchy that upholds an image of society that serves the men. And through these interactions with others discussing the female experience, I was becoming aware that it seemed that the concept of honor, integrity, and moral code was very one-sided, and it had to be visible in the woman. So I'll read the poem. Woman, woman, woman. The clouds are still, as in a stop-motion frame. Four birds find a bony branch to rest their tired wings. To our ears, the travellers of the sky merely chirp and screech, stirring the day to life. But some birds hear and chatter. For below them, in a sugarcane field, lies a body parched by the sun, the tongue a hardened shell, shoeless and limp. The soulless soil defiled by sin. The cane stalks seem to have shapeshifted into snakes. And that body, displayed to all like some relic. Testimony to her impurity. Broken, bruised, deformed. That body carries a shame that will not be spoken of by fearful people who christen her. Woman, woman, woman. And the birds, they chatter and move on to some other perch, some other story. This is such heartbreaking stuff. It really is. So this is a really significant example of silence, and isn't it, in terms of this horrendous idea of how a woman's life is disposable and disregarded. Um, would you say that by foregrounding this issue, it's also creating some risks around you perhaps in terms of challenges or conflicts within the Asian community or alienation of yourself is that is this posing a risk in terms of conflicting with cultural beliefs I think that's a very interesting question <laughs> um <laughs> partly because I, I as I, I well the beginning point of Hemoshi is acknowledging that alienation of not belonging within 
the Asian community for various reasons. Um, and I think that curiosity is what <laughs> fueled my practice um, of you know questioning everything that was going on around me. But I think that it's nice to see that that is, well, the image of the woman is slowly changing anyway because of a generational difference. And most people are now coming to question um, the treatment of women. Um, but of course, there will always be a resistance. And that is because um, I think it's probably best to quote some poetry now. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> I've, got it in, I've got it in Hiroshi. Um I'll read this poem, and I think it just directly answers that question. Um, and you mentioned before about me being very shy, and I think that poetry enables me to construct my thoughts and deliver it uh, in the best way possible because it, in some way, does take a lot of courage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I'll, I will read... Um, a passage of this poem. It's the second poem, so it's entitled Two. I was cast out of my motherland by the hands of my ancestors. I see flashes of salted black plums, spitting sugar canes, chai in bowls, gin stories in the dark, and hear home in the pronunciation of my name. It still lingers like the scent of smoke from the hooker pipe. I was eleven when I first found that fear suited my face, and that in the noir nights I resembled the black of a crow. I pecked her soil, tasted its fruit, and then fell asleep on her munji. The dark witnessed the start of my fall. Dark drowned the light, warm tiles burnt my feet, the ant colony built trails and uncooked rice, and those girls, starry-eyed, auctioned to entitled men, paid with the currency of their lives. Who am I to speak, coaxed to suspect? You desire to feed on men, to destroy our heritage, this is what they say. So I let go, shed my skin, kissed my hands goodbye, and felt the blood race in the hands that replaced my own, my own, my own. Oh, thank you for reading this. Um, I think that um, this poem is at the very beginning of the sequence. And I think it sets the intention that I actually do not want, well, I'm willing to say things that push back against the collective um, ideal of identity, especially when it comes to the female. Uh, there are things that I don't agree with and I felt the responsibility to say it. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Because, of course, um, it takes courage, doesn't it, to create 
positive change because it you know it so often is about being in that vulnerable position in the first instance you know or you know disempowered oppressed uh discriminated against for example and um it is about that courage to stand up and um i read that you had actually felt quite wary even um in terms of your writing you know, in terms of how it would be received, um, the risk of alienation, feeling isolated. So what interests me is where your courage has come from to let you do this work anyway. I think growing up, I was encouraged at home with my parents anyway to discuss these issues and brought these moral issues as well within society um we would hear stories um things that were going on around us I had a very close friend from a very young age who was in some way not being treated in the best way and she ran away from home and you know the gossip and the aftermath um I just didn't agree with it and I think having those kinds of conversations it's not enough to just have them at home and that's it I think sometimes you have to it doesn't feel like courage (laughs) on my part because I feel it's it's as simple as breathing that you need to speak up if something is um well if justice is not being served in some way and I think my questioning came from the silence around these topics and how people just accept it. Oh, this is honor or this is the way life is. And as a woman, you just have to accept it. Um, I think that's quite degrading. Um, so yeah, I think it's a willingness and it's not easy. You have to be consistent to constantly push past those barriers. That That's interesting because I often feel that courage isn't actually a choice, you know, when you're talking about uh, either survival or equality or justice, that you may appear to be courageous, but that doesn't mean to say you're not at risk or you're not frightened yourself. Is that fair? Yes, and I think there is always a risk because you have to be careful in how you construct what you write, Um, which at one point I used to worry about it a lot, (laughs) but I've found a way to, like you state, you know, it's something very natural and you have to do it. So um, I think for me, I know that I have to be honest about what's going on around me and I think to have a purpose to um, represent those narratives and again I think the female experience is complex because we are pushing back against multiple narratives which are projected onto the female British Muslim slash Pakistani so there are you know various threads there Um, and yeah, in, in some way, it's a compulsion to continue that search. 
And also um, it feels like an urgency because when I look at your poem, Inheritance, the enormously heavy linguistic shackles that need to be removed, you know, the, the, the prejudice in language alone, when you repeat um, a common phrase in Urdu that translates as a woman will take a man to hell. And that actually this is a phrase that's also used by influential Muslim leaders in prayer, for example. So how how can women in this community find a way to remove such heavy linguistic shackles? I think it's very interesting because the phrase is, well, it's not actually used in prayer, but it's kind of, um, it's a, a common thought, I would say, within communities uh, where the religious faith is warped in such a way to suit the patriarchal culture, tradition as well. And I think that it's a conditioning that women inherit as well, which is where we do believe, I think, you know, the, the common misconception that women are temptresses and they cause kind of all the chaos and sin in the world. Um, and many women inherit this way of looking at the world and constantly blame themselves for something as even as cruel and terrible as sexual abuse or um, being in a, um, a marriage that's not working. You know, everything is um, placed onto the female. She has to embody honour and perfection and society, which, of course, is rooted in um, the Pakistani culture, which uh, decided at one point that women should be domesticated, uh, which I find interesting because I think it's about acknowledging that complexity because within the Islamic tradition, there are women working and being very um, liberated in some sense. And then, of course, here we are now in a completely different position in society. Um, so I think it's about showing the messiness of the female experience and inheritance blurs those boundaries. Yeah, that's interesting because in your poem Erased, you talk about the feminine curse and it made me wonder what that's like from your point of view, looking towards your mother's generation, your grandma's generation, your great grandma's generation and what it's like perhaps in return, you know, for your grandma, or your mum to be looking at your generation where they may be hopeful of seeing positive changes around your own liberation, your sense of identity, for example. How would you say that idea of the feminine curse is perhaps shifting between generations? Oh, it's definitely shifting. And I think that comes from women knowing that they are human <laughs> and not objects. And I think that, um, I mean, that's not to say 
I should clarify, that's not to say that my mother or the generations that have come before her were objects because I think that they were strong women and I think that's what I mean by acknowledging the complexity of the female experience because often there is a certain version of feminism that uh, has come to other the South Asian female as um, the sexually suppressed female who has no control or strength of any kind and needs saving. But I think that's another trope that's um, problematic. And I think that I was aware that I needed to clarify um, within my poetry that um, my mother's generation and my grandmother's generation were strong, not in the way that we might expect, but they were in some way fighting the patriarchy, but in a silent way, and the feminism and the struggle is rooted in that silence. Um, but I think that so most women of my mother's generation um, would then, of course, give the freedoms and the rights to their daughters so that they could go on and make that change. So, um, well, I hope that they're proud of mm. <laughs> everything that's going on mm. right now. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a that's an interesting idea, you know, that there is strength and power in that silence because um, in your poem, uh, if I've got the right pronunciation, shikwa, um, yes. that's you know, a, a powerful poem where you're referring to your grandma, you tell us, my grandma is one of the women intermittently throughout this poem. And you're very clear that your grandmother's generation was completely misunderstood, but that strength lay in her silence. So how would you expand on that idea of um, strength in silence? And if you like... What might you imagine your grandma's response would be in order to not be misunderstood? What is it do you think she would say? I think it's very difficult being constantly misunderstood. And I think, of course, for my grandma, that would be a very different struggle. And for me, it's a very different struggle being raised here in the UK. So I would probably say I misunderstood in different ways, um, probably multiple ways by different people. <laughs> um, and I would say to embrace the complexity and to refuse explanation. Um, I think refusing explanation is a form of resistance and is another form of silence which holds a power to it. And I think for my grandma's generation, I'm not entirely sure, I, I don't think I can speak for her, <laughs> um, but I... I think that 
the ideas that are coming now within the community and within my work and what I'm writing about is very, is a natural progression. Um, it's, it's, it's a response to questioning and solving why the female in some way has a limited, um, capacity in comparison to the male um and i think of course because of women receiving education and working there's there's a big change in that sense um and i think you know it's very natural frightening for some <laughs> who who like control but i think it's um a natural progression into the modern world um so i think I'd like to think that my grandma would be accepting of that. Of course, they've passed on now, so. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's imagining, isn't it? Trying to appreciate, um, you know, that point of view. Um, and, it, it, you know, your poetry certainly helps articulate, you know, what these struggles have been and what these, these struggles are. Um, it also seems to show up actually when you talk about partition, you know, that when you relate this experience of um, the female plight, if you like, to the historical partition of India, but how you even relate that to a diaspora of the mind, body and soul even. I wondered, you know, from the listener's point of view, if you could help talk through how, you know, how you make that link and how that shows up in your poetry. Well, it's interesting. I think um, it might be worth mentioning that um, when I was constructing Hamoshi, I um, read Muhammad Iqbal's Secrets of the Self, which is a poetry philosophy book about um, understanding the concepts of the self and reaching a form of self-liberation. And within that book, he talks about um, the ways in which one can achieve a perfected state um, and one must go on a journey which is of course uh, the first stage of it is becoming aware of the self and in its raw state and then the self in relation to the world and then projecting the self into this uh, imagined state where there could be some form of hope and um, the partition was an experience which I think that many even people living within who inherit these experiences might not fully understand the implications of it um, and that became evident to me as well when I was teaching um, poetry and we were talking about the partition and many students did not know how gruesome the aftermath of it was. And so we, we tend to just celebrate 
Independence Day without understanding the the terror of it and the gruesome incident where, of course, um, the raping and killing of women was very, um, it was an act of uh, violence and war. It was, women in some way were seen as um, territory and, and and in that way, it can be quite, some of the stories you read, um, which I won't mention here, of course, are very gruesome and disheartening. Um, and I think it's about thinking about the self in relation to the world. And even though it's a collective trauma that's inherited, um, and one that maybe is glossed over when we think about uh, the building of nations such as India and Pakistan and how um, it's built on this premise of hope but underneath all of that is the massacres and the genocide and the deaths of many. Um, yeah, and I think with... The first instance of it, it was discovering this huge event that has, even to this day, many moral, social and cultural implications. Um, yeah, and... Yeah, and I, I think, you know, it's a migration of sorrow. Yeah. Yeah, and you do talk about a migration song, don't you, um, in one of your poems? And it is catastrophically traumatic. And, of course, today we talk about intergenerational trauma. You know, that's how deep-seated such trauma is that continues to ricochet through generations. And... Would you say that, if you like, your poetry is a response to intergenerational trauma? In some way, yes. I think that um, the worldview that we inherit um, is a mixture of things. And, of course, um, I would say that my work incorporates ideas of intergenerational trauma but it's very rooted in unpacking and revealing what constitutes the self or selves looking at the multiple narratives um, and I get I think rising above the binaries um, So yes, I think these intergenerational trauma, sexism, racism are things that we inherit in different ways and it's about questioning those ideas and seeing where it takes you. And I think for that reason, poetry feels like a search and one that I don't think will ever end.
Yeah, that's interesting because that reflects, I think, um, in a poem where you ask, can I be from here if my roots lie elsewhere? And that speaks so directly to that displacement, being uprooted, that disconnection, the brutality of the partition of India in 1947 in terms of massive displacements of people and divisions of families is not something that is, I think, commonly understood, really, you know, in terms of school curriculum history. Um, but you pose that question, can I be from here if my roots lie elsewhere? And I wondered if it's poetry that gives you a place. Yes, definitely. <laughs> poetry. Uh, I'll quote some. <laughs> I'll read a poem. <laughs> mm, thank you. <laughs> um, it's just a, a passage from a poem which is entitled 22 in the sequence of Hamoshi. I cannot write, I cannot write of who I am, afraid of sentimentalism. Poetry, a gift I stumbled upon, a privilege to speak society. Iqbal envisioned motherland, and I still yearn for it. I see a craft to create a cycle of thought, using condensed images to riot for us. Voiceless, we buy into moulded liberty, sleep with money, wake trapped in the same loveless cycle. I am more than my body. I am more than this shell. That's lovely because you mentioned, um, I understand um, your favourite poet uh, is Mohammed Iqbal, who, who you just mentioned. Um, and I, I learned that um, he is known as the poet-philosopher of Pakistan and that perhaps this, you know, really ties into your mystical appreciation perhaps of, of poetry and as you were just saying in that reading that we are more than our bodies for example and I also saw you referred to the fourth space so I wondered if perhaps all of this yeah so I'd be really interested in how all of this and 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 from what you just read relates to that idea of mysticism and the fourth space. Oh <laughs> yes firstly I should say yes I I, I really do appreciate uh, Iqbal's work and um I like its complexity. I like the layers and the philosophical search for the self, which um, I was very interested in. And I think that set out the foundation for my debut collection. Um, the fourth space is something that I'm working on at the moment. Um, some new poetry that's based on this space, which is looking for ways to return to the internal narrative of the self, um, 
taking on nomadic thought. So we're not constantly thinking about the physical experience of the self. Um, and I am interested in thinking more about how the psychological aspects of, again, this concept of the self as a singular entity is, I find anyway, I think it's reductive. And I think that with theories such as the dialogical self, thinking about multiple selves within one body um, is interesting because it means that we can have a dialogue uh, and, you know, thinking about cross-cultural contact um, and the way that we are complex beings. And if I am just reduced to my headscarf or the, the color of my skin, it's very limiting. So the fourth space acknowledges that and thinking about the I, perception, uh, the lyric, is that limiting as well for the writer of color. So I'm, I'm interested in um, blurring those boundaries, uh, returning to experience and narrative and thinking about lived experience as well, um, which again is filtered through my perception. So everything begins with I, my perception of the world. Um, which I think Iqbal acknowledges as well for the spiritual search that one must be aware of how they perceive the world and themselves and then kind of try to break from that cultural construct, um, which I'm hoping to do with, <laughs> uh, with some new poetry, which takes on the myth of the Chirail yeah, it's, you know, it's what we were saying about um, the shackles, if you like, of linguistics, um, you know, the shackles of cultural constructs, um, artificial beliefs, you know, that are really um, just related to to power constructs. What I was interested um, when when I read um, Iqbal was your favourite poet. So um, I was interested to explore, you know, how he was perceived and understood. And it was really interesting to see or to read that his, his ideas of the ego were about striving to achieve freedom. And I thought that was really significant because perhaps that's how you feel as an individual, as a, as a poet, as a writer, it's interesting you're talking about multiple selves. Um, it's almost denying the ego to be kind of one dominant self, if you like. Yes. But also you're talking so much about issues of freedom and oppression, um, you know, in relation to the position of women, for example. Um, is, is, is that core, perhaps, a core motivator perhaps to your own work that's been influenced by Iqbal and his ideas of the ego striving to achieve freedom. Oh, yes, I think that the core ideas are there. And I think another poet that I'm fascinated by, which I think there's a crossover between this poet and Iqbal, which is Walt Whitman. Um, and his poetry 
is very visionary too, and I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by poets who can um, project into the future in some way, um, and still be aware of the the context, so the social and cultural rooting, um, and I think with Iqbal's work, I'm also aware of its limitations as well. And I think that's very natural because of the time it was produced. Um, and I, I think that it's my responsibility to respond to that, but also to talk about the, the, the current concerns surrounding um, identity and the, the search for a stronger sense of self. Um, and I think that Iqbal is very interested in the collective, but he's also very interested in the individual. And if every individual um, worked towards a stronger understanding of the self, that would inform the collective. Um, so I, I think I would say that my poetry and my work begins with individuality, whatever that means, because it's complex. <laughs> yeah, interesting, though, how a healthier um, understanding of the self can inform a healthier collective. And your perspective on identity, of course, equally includes the issues of stereotyping around the male Muslim identity. And in my introduction, um, I refer to the fact that you've been highly commended in the Forward Book of Poetry for 2023. And that's for your poem, My Dad is a Terrorist. And you're clearly uh, responding to Islamophobia, um, you know, sweeping judgments that are now imposed, particularly on the, the Muslim male. And I wondered if you could share more on that and, and how you and, and your father have, have experienced that prejudice. I think um, I find the idea of, of course, there is a partial truth to um, a stereotype, and which is why you know, sometimes we use them for safety and, and all of that. But I think what I find very funny is there's a stereotype that most um, women have oppressive fathers. And, um, and I think usually what do we, we... I was thinking about appearances... And it was kind of, it was meant to be a funny poem <laughs> about, um, again, the sweeping judgments. Um, and I think racism is such, racism and uh, well, Islamophobia as well, it's a very, um, a reductive way and it's a reductive experience because you feel as if someone has not paid attention to who you are, but to what you are. And that is quite limiting and it's frustrating sometimes because, I mean, I think it hurts. That's the most honest answer. Um, but then 
my dad always says anyway that uh people are made up of their own circumstances and context and they come to an understanding of the world from their experiences and so you should never take it personally if somebody treats you in that way but I think I was trying to sketch a character of my dad um which would probably go against the grim and terrifying terrorist which we usually associate with the Muslim man. I can read the poem if you want me to. <laughs> if you're if you're happy to, it will certainly give the um, listeners more context. Thank you. My dad is a terrorist. My dad has a grey beard, pumps the car's stereo with a man reciting Allah's words, carries Surah Yasin in his car's glove compartment, eats with his right hand, greets his neighbours, visits the mosque, cares for the elderly, gives to charity, prays five times a day and eats his fruit, loves my mum's curry, has jokes up his sleeves. He wears my mum's prescribed glasses to read the Quran, but after he reads Surah Fadiya, he falls asleep. Yes, that's my dad, the terrorist. <laughs> that cuddly man that's fallen asleep. Yes. <laughs> Him. Which he actually does, so uh, I find it very funny. <laughs> that's very sweet thank you for sharing the poem it's a really um it's really such a huge issue isn't it how um perception can be so hijacked um you know whether that's by news or social media or prejudice in in language um you know when actually such generous kind gentle people you know are so harmed people that are contributing to society in positive ways can be so harmed and I read recently that in in Britain uh, we have around 2.7 Muslims in Great Britain and I thought that was interesting when I read you talking about the need to humanize the Muslim identity, uh, you know, a significant part of, of our population that needs to be humanised. That's um, quite a shocking reality, but an important one. How, how do you see that process even beginning to, to humanise identities away from all of that negative noise? I mean, firstly, I should state that it's a very sad fact that um we need to humanise, and I think that term just feels quite negative in some sense, as if, you know, you have to prove your humanity to others. But, I I mean, of course, that's the condition that we are in, and I think that we'd have to, we have to face that. And I think the best way to address this issue is to create art and to tell stories, whether that's in music or film or poetry, or if you're, you're writing a novel. And I think that it's very interesting because I um, I led a workshop in a high school uh, with some 
students from a Muslim background and they were talking about uh, Islamophobia and I encouraged them to write a poem based on the, their experiences and it was very impressive to, you know to to hear them read back and I think it takes a lot of courage to write down an experience and then read it back to your peers and of course I was there in the room so it's very nerve-wracking and I think the more we have experiences to discuss and explore through the arts um, will help create conversation and conversation and dialogue is the best way forward. Um, and I think the more we explore the complexities, the nuances of identity, uh, I think there is hope. Yeah. And would you say that in response to this series question, uh, the podcast title, Can Art Save Us? Is it the fact that art invites dialogue one of the ways that perhaps art can save us? Oh, yes. I think um, it takes a lot of maturity as well to converse. <laughs> And uh, I think art, of course, creates dialogue, but art can sometimes make us uncomfortable. And I think that is a good thing because it's challenging and you become curious. And through that, um, there is hope that it can save us. And it has saved us in the past. <laughs> so I think, you know, it's about looking at the evidence and understanding the power of art yeah absolutely yeah yeah and it's interesting isn't it because uh when, when you mention evidence it's so significant isn't it that um unfortunately in in times of of war and conflict uh the arts are an instant target you know whether it's book burning or destroying paintings you know it, it all falls under battles of propaganda and belief uh, ownership and disownership um it's freedom of expression that people it's such <laughs> a significant yeah 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 it's such a significant target that it kind of is evidence in itself of therefore how important mm -hmm. its role actually yes. is i i would agree and i think that for all the artists out there who are interested in creativity um it's the only thing that you can do uh, like we mentioned before about courage it's very natural and you have to do it you have to speak up you have to create um it's the only way we can make sense of the world yes and what i find heartbreaking is that being a poet is actually, depending on your context and where you are in the world, a very yes. dangerous job. Yes. Um, and it, it is a terrifying thought. Um, when you think that um, there are people incarcerated or even executed for being a poet or for being an artist, um, that is 
basically um, standing up for open dialogue to be able to challenge openly to stand up for justice. Um, but this is to a degree commonplace today that there are artists and poets that are incarcerated or executed. H- how uppermost is that reality in your own mind as a poet? Oh, um, it's, of, of course, I mean, there is always that fear that you might say something honest that could offend um, someone who wants to seek control. But I think that going back to courage, if you must say it, you have to do it. And there is no other way you can survive. It becomes an act of survival. And I think for others, it's important that you remember those who are surviving and struggling for the honest truth. And I think, um, and, and that's something that we have to make sure that we remember and uh, circulate the texts that are being banned or destroyed because of their honesty. Yes, because I, I, I wonder, um, I'm interested, obviously, in, in your point of view as a poet, whether poetry is an art form that may become increasingly important in terms of a space of authenticity and an honest voice. Because what concerns me with our digital world is that place of disinformation, of algorithmic control over our choices, that it's actually a deprivation of our own curiosity uh, you know we're, we're less inclined to make our own choices because an algorithm is leading us to those choices um I, I was interested in whether you can see almost an insurgence of the art form um as people increasingly want to find and return to those spaces of authentic and honest voices Yeah, I think, you know, poetry is a step away from propaganda. And the reason being is because when it comes to experience, um, well, I mean, of course, purity, sorry, poetry has a, you're looking for pure language. You know, it's, um, you have to be quite concise with, the language that you've used and everything is there for a reason so you know it's a careful construction of an experience but um journalists tend to have so the media has headlines and i think the headlines can be quite deceptive sometimes because um it's all about catchphrases and um pitting people against one another and selling papers and capitalism and all of that. And I think poetry has the ability to step away from all of that and return to pure language and and in turn 
represent well you're not representing an experience you're representing an experience which if, when I write poetry I try not to get in the way of what's happened so if I'm telling a story about um, a body found in the sugarcane field of course it is written from my perspective but I think that it, it allows the reader to challenge themselves and to think about what's being displayed to them. And I think that interaction um, is an important interaction which I think poetry can offer. Um, and sometimes it can lead to a discussion, a debate, but all of that is healthy and it's needed for a society to prosper. Yes, absolutely. And, and that is my hope um, for this podcast, um, Cannot Save Us, in terms of all of the guests that are invited, um, you know, to, to take part. And even for the listeners who I consider as co-researchers, you know, their comments on courage, curiosity, or how they want to respond or what they've learned are all really important, um, you know, as a sort of collective research base. And it does seem to me that um, if any listener or however many listeners are choosing to listen to something that's completely new, that it's an exercise in curiosity, it's an exercise in being open to finding out about what does this poet have to say? What does this architect have to say? Regardless of whether we have existing, pre-existing interests in those fields, that that's hopefully very reflective of, of what you were just saying too. It, it's a very necessary need to cultivate this openness and, and this dialogue. Um, and that certainly seems to be what you're doing very, very successfully. I wonder, I'm very conscious that I'm I'm beginning to steal time. So just, just as we um, have to uh, come to, to a close, I wonder whether um, it might just be worth sharing um, with listeners that you use a fictocritical approach um, and how that can be understood, that blend of creative and critical writing. Um, I think that is probably more evident in my recent work that I'm working on. Um, and I think it's one that acknowledges the personal. Um, so, of course, talking about experience, but blending that with theoretical concepts. Um, so thinking about dialogical self um, and bringing in different philosophical traditions and I think it's combining creative writing with theory um, which I think is a different beast in itself <laughs> but yeah I, it, it's a blend of uh, multiple voices as well um, and I think that um, in some way informs that perspective of trying not to be a singular I, uh, which we often find uh, in poetry, for the lyric, anyway, the expression of the lyric. Yeah, and, and maybe um, 
as we come to an end, that's a lovely reminder too that we all have a voice. We all deserve to have a voice. Um, and it's about um, obviously moving away from the oppression of certain voices and uh, moving towards that openness of multiple voices. Um, uh, that Hopefully that's, um, you know, a, a lovely point of influence to, to be able to share through, through your work. I, I wondered, um, Kutia, um, that whilst on your episode um, page of the podcast, um, I'll be able to signpost to your book and, and to your website um, so that uh, listeners can, can find out more. Whether there was any uh, lasting thoughts you'd like to leave us with or extracts from a poem, whether there was something that, that you would like to leave the listener with as we draw this, this podcast to a close. Yes. Um, well, I'd like to read a poem. Yes. And I would also like to say that conversation is truly important. And I'm a big believer that we can agree to disagree. And that's okay. Um, but I think what is needed is mutual respect. Um, and I think that's a place that art demands that, you know, um, and through dialogue, we can come to understand ourselves, but others and those around us. And I think it can create um, a healthier society. <laughs> so I'll end with a poem now. <laughs> Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. I've existed in many states, been used by people who see their needs. I fit shoes of isms. People spit racism, sexism, radicalism, as if I own the words. I will tell my people. I will tell you when you tell yours. Day and night, I am the walking dead. I linger in lonely states until pages burn from my flame. The page carries us. I take charge, tell you I feel. Histories of torture teach me I am not alone. Poets paint periods with words. I crave to speak to souls, not faces. I pray my words are enough. I can't move mountains, but I can move you, listener, to give me my voice back. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Kutia. It, it's it's an absolute gift hearing hearing you read. But but thank you so much for creating the time and to raise so many important considerations, particularly around openness and and dialogue and and getting past all of these artificial constructs. You know that are are creating and breeding prejudice. Um, it, it, it's so important. You're, you're clearly recognised as an important voice of your generation today. And, and 
I can only see that you're going to be continue to be an, an important voice in the future and I can't thank you enough for your time today thank you well, thank you for having me and it's been enjoyable <laughs> thank you